Please join me in Exodus 11. The Lord said to Moses, Yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants, and in the sight of the people. So Moses said, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. And there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been, nor ever will be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you, and after that I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Almighty God, we do confess that this indeed is the word of the Lord. And as such, we give honor to your word because we give honor to you. And as such, we believe that this word that we have just read was written and given for our instruction, for our encouragement, ultimately for our salvation, that we might come to know and to believe in the God of Israel. Lord, I pray today that you would once again remind us of who you are, help us to see who we are in light of who you are, and help us to see the extent of your love for your people. And Lord, I pray that all of us would respond to this great news that we're going to see here in the book of Exodus with faith, with trust, with belief in you as our great and mighty God and Savior. So, Lord, we commit this time of studying your scriptures, studying your word together to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. So, one of the things that we've been doing in our studies through the book of Exodus is we've been trying to, as a church family, memorize the Ten Commandments. Now, I realize that some of you already have the Ten Commandments memorized, which is great, um, but this becomes a good rehearsal for us. And for those who don't have them memorized, this is a wonderful exercise because these are God's kind of top 10. This would be important for us as Christians to have memorized and have uh, sort of at the front of our minds, if you will. So each week we've been introducing another command for us to uh, consider and think about. Um, this week we're going to get to commandment number five, but I want to just rehearse one through four really quickly. Um, if you know commandment one, go ahead and just you can say it to me. Don't be shy. What's commandment number one? Great. You shall have no other gods before me. What about commandment number two? 
Great. You shall not make for yourself an idol. Commandment number three. I love how with each commandment, less, we're like falling off. You know, this is good. This means we need to continue to work on this. We will memorize these. So commandment three is you shall not misuse the name of the Lord. Commandment number four. Does anybody know commandment number four? Awesome. We had a recovery in here. More people jumped in on that one. So remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. And now the fifth commandment and the first of the commandments that are horizontal in nature, meaning that they relate to our relationship now with other people. Commandment number five is honor your father and your mother. And of course, the reason we're studying the Ten Commandments or trying to memorize them is because they are revealed in Exodus chapter 20. So we'll be getting there in a few weeks in our sermon series here in the book of Exodus. Um, So there's the first five. This morning, we are going to consider the Passover. Now, all of us at some point in our life have experienced being passed over for something. For some of us, maybe it was when we were in elementary school and somebody got nominated as a team captain and everybody else lined up and they said, I want you, and I want you, and I want you. And some of us were those kids who got totally passed over, and you were either the last one chosen for the team, or maybe they said, hey, can you be the cheerleader or the water boy? We have enough players here, and you got passed over. For others, maybe it was not getting accepted to a school that you wanted to get into, or an internship program that you wanted, or maybe a promotion at work that you wanted or thought that you deserved and you were passed over and somebody else was given that opportunity. And when something like that happens, it's a bummer for us. You feel disappointed. That was the thing that you wanted. But getting passed over is not always a bad thing. Sometimes being passed over for something is actually great news. For example, being passed over for jury duty is cause for celebration Being passed over for an IRS audit is definitely good news. Being passed over for a military draft, if that were to happen, would probably be something that you would be grateful for. So I guess at the end of the day, when we think about being passed over for something, it really just comes down to what are we talking about? What what exactly are we being passed over for? Well, in these chapters, chapter 11, we're also going to consider Exodus 12 today, we see the Jewish people, God's people, experiencing a passing over. And this event is going to become the most significant event in their national history. It's the event that from this day forward, the Jewish people will always look back to as the greatest demonstration of Yahweh, of the Lord's favor and love for them. And most of us sitting in church this morning have heard of the Passover. For Jewish people, the Passover is still a holiday that they celebrate every year. So it's a celebration or it's a memorial of sorts, and we're going to talk about that a little bit together. But we need to understand that before Passover was ever a holiday, it was first an event. It was an actual event in their history that they went through that later became a holiday. It's kind of like for us as Americans the 4th of July or Independence Day. Sure, we celebrate that every, every year as a holiday. But before it was ever a holiday, Independence Day was an event that happened in 1776, the day that America declared her independence 
from England. That's how Passover functioned for the Jewish people. But like I said, it began as an event. What were the circumstances surrounding this event? Well, to recap briefly, God's people, the Hebrews, had been in Egypt for over 400 years. And they had become enslaved in Egypt. They were actually the slave labor force of the pharaohs. Their labor had intensified. It had gotten worse. And Pharaoh had ultimately decreed the death of the Hebrew boys. So every new Hebrew son that was born was supposed to be tossed. Excuse me. Maybe I should drink water. No, I'm okay. Should be tossed. Sorry, I'm going to laugh again. (laughs) Because half of you are still laughing. See, Ryan, we all need grace up here, man. <laughs> oh, at least I'm not singing. Okay. So ultimately, <clears throat> they were to toss the Hebrew boys into the Nile River. So things were bleak, and it was against this dark backdrop that God was now going to act on behalf of his people, the Israelites. How did he do that? Well, he's raised up a human deliverer, the man Moses, and through Moses... God is going to demand that Pharaoh release his people so that they could come out of Egypt and be free to worship and serve the Lord. But as we talked about last week, Pharaoh hardened his heart and he wouldn't do it. So God sent plague after plague on the land of Egypt to judge them. Now, interestingly and significantly, every single plague was followed by a new opportunity for Pharaoh and for Egypt to listen to God, and to obey God, but they refused. And so, this brings us to the tenth, the final, the most extreme and severe of all of these plagues and the Passover. In chapter 11, which we read together, God now announces the death of the firstborn son of every family in Egypt. I want us just to stop for a minute and just think about how seismic this is. The death of every firstborn male in all of Egypt. Is anybody here the firstborn son in your family by a show of hands? So just in this room, I see about a dozen hands raised right now. I want you to stop and think about if tonight, The firstborn male in every household in America died. How catastrophic would that be? Obviously, our church would be radically impacted. But I mean, think about every business, every industry, every level of government, uh, every family, basically, every neighborhood, every church would be impacted as we, in an instant, in a single night, lose Every single firstborn male in our nation. Imagine with me the mourning, the disruption, again, to every industry, to every segment of our society. Tomorrow would be complete chaos. And so we we see that this is a very serious act of judgment from God on a hardened Egyptian nation. And so this morning, I'm going to help us consider four different aspects of this passing over, of the Passover, to help us get our hearts and our minds around what is actually taking place here. And the first thing, in light of what I was just saying, that we have to understand is that the Passover 
is an act of judgment. Plain and simple, the Passover is an act of judgment. Now, Ryan, last week when he talked about the plagues, he, he talked about judgment. But this is the 10th plague. And so, again, this is connected to judgment. It relates here to, and it's certainly worth talking about again. God, here in Exodus 11 and 12, is judging the land of Egypt. And this is a very harsh judgment. Right? If we've grown up in the church and we've heard this story a hundred times, we're just kind of going through it and hemming and hawing as we're reading this. But if you've never read this story before, you're going, whoa, God's like, he's killing the firstborn male of every single family. This is harsh. This is an intense judgment from Almighty God. So we should be mindful of several things as we consider this judgment. The first is this, as I mentioned, the Egyptians were mercilessly oppressive. The Egyptian people, and Pharaoh in particular, had intensified his oppression of this people group, the Hebrew people. He had intensified his oppression generation after generation. At this point, the Israelites are completely enslaved. They have virtually no rights, and they are working themselves to death. Not only that, but as I mentioned, Pharaoh has also decreed the death of their children. These people are in an unimaginable situation. And so God is now acting to judge Egypt and particularly Pharaoh in light of their sins. Secondly, we need to be reminded, church, that God has been so incredibly patient. This has gone on for over 400 years. And God has stayed his hand of judgment. And he has given Egypt opportunity now through the first nine plagues to repent. God is saying, I mean business. This needs to stop. You can no longer mistreat my people. Let them go. And what has been the response of Egypt and Pharaoh? A hardened heart. A no. An unwillingness to relent. And so now God is going to drop the hammer. Third, we need to be reminded that these plagues have grown in their severity. God didn't come out of the gate and strike down the firstborn son in Egypt. God has progressively intensified the severity of the plagues. And Pharaoh's response has been, I will not relent. I will not let your people go. And so now, again, God is dropping the hammer. Judgment has reached catastrophic heights. And so for us this morning who are living on this side of the cross, who are living in an age of grace, if you will, we need to be reminded from this story of the reality of God's judgment on sin. Because lots of people, for sure outside of the church, but even within the walls of the church, are uncomfortable with the idea of a God who would actually take sin so seriously that he would judge it. We love the idea of a God who is benevolent, a God who is merciful, a God who is accepting, a God who is affirming, but we cringe at the idea of a God who actually is willing to judge sin and to right the wrongs that are happening in the world. But the fact of the matter, church, is that with a moment of reflection and, and just brutal honesty, we would all have to admit that it's not judgment in general that we're uncomfortable with. 
We just don't like the idea of ourselves being judged. Because all of us can look at horrific atrocities in the world. We can look at systemic evils in the world and we can say in our hearts, yeah, those perpetrators ought to be judged. There should be consequences when people act that way. When World War II came to a close and all of the horrors of the Holocaust became clear and understood, the international community came together and they knew that something had to be done in response to that. Sure, the war was over. Sure, there were no more concentration camps that were being operated. But the international community came together and said something needs to be done to try to right the wrong as much as possible in response to what had happened. And this ultimately led to the Nuremberg trials and the convictions of dozens of Nazi leaders. When we see evil things that are happening in the world, our reaction is not just to sit back and go, eh, it is what it is. That's the way the world works. Those sorts of things happen or happen. And certainly when an evil or a serious injustice happens to us, our response is not just to sit back passively and go, eh, big deal. Inside, we say, this is unfair. This is not right. We need justice to be served. And the reason for that is because all of us are created in the image of a just God. That's not a coincidence. You are created in the image of a just God. That's why we long for equity. That's why we long for justice. And our God will punish every sin and he will right every single wrong. And the sobering reality that we have to come to grips with is that the evil in the world today is not just out there. The evil in the world today is in here. And until we get that firmly rooted in our hearts and our minds, we will never honor God. We will never glorify God. All of us in this room are evil to varying degrees, and all of us are deserving of God's judgment. Well, somebody might want to say, no, I'm not. <laughs> yes, you are. Yes, you are. And the sooner you deal with that and come to grips with the fact that you yourself have done many wrong things that have actually hurt people in the world, again, you are never going to be in a place where you can experience God's grace and his mercy. Well, what do you mean, Daniel? Because I'm not Adolf Hitler. How can you say I'm evil? Many of us have started or perpetuated rumors that have done terrible damage to other people. Many of us have used other people for our own pleasure or for our own purposes without considering how it might hurt that other person. Many of us in this room have taken things from other people that don't belong to us and we've left someone else in a tougher spot as a result. Some of us in this room have sat back at points in our lives why, while a bully picked on another kid or while a stranger was in distress. I could go on and on. The point is that as we start to reflect on what we've done in our lives, it's not just about the grave injustices out there. All of us have done things over and over and over in our lives that have actually really impacted people, really hurt people, really devastated people, and God is not okay with that. Because God is a just God, and God is a loving God. That's why Romans 3.23 says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And Egypt and the Egyptians are no exception. And so judgment comes for the land of Egypt. 
If you would, look at chapter 12 with me, starting in verse 29, and we're going to see judgment falling on Egypt. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go, serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. Verse 33, The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, We shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks and on their shoulders. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so that they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children. A mixed multitude also went up with them, and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. We'll stop there. Just as God had warned, judgment came. And again, the Passover reminds us of the reality of God's judgment. Don't make the mistake of equating God's patience in judging the world with his indifference towards sin. Because one of the tensions we face is we're looking at a world where there is evil, where there is injustice, and we say, why is God not judging that? God's not indifferent towards sin. He will judge every sin, but he's being patient. 2 Peter 3, 9 and 10 reminds us that the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And then in verse 10, it says, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Just like Egypt, hundreds of years had passed. Plague after plague had fallen on them, and God was giving them opportunity to repent. The same thing is happening in our world today. But just as the ultimate judgment, the death of the firstborn, came on a night, a single night, Christ himself will return as judge in a night that no one expects. Well, thankfully, the Passover is not only an act of judgment, but it's also an act of mercy. Verse 7 of chapter 11 puts it this way, But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. What's that mean? It means that God is making a distinction between his people and the Egyptians. Now, God didn't have to do this. It wasn't as if the Israelites were perfect, that they were without sin, that they were righteous in and of themselves. They themselves were sinners. They were flawed people. They deserved God's judgment as well. So how do we explain the fact that God is now going to make a distinction between his people who are sinners and the Egyptians who are sinners? Answer, mercy. Mercy. The Passover is also an act 
of mercy. Our God is a God of incredible mercy. He extended that mercy to an undeserving people that he loves relentlessly. God chose the Israelites and God set his seal upon them and his love upon them. And nothing was going to change that. Now God has made this distinction over and over again with Israel throughout the plagues. As Ryan went through the plagues last week, you'll notice that the plagues were falling on Egypt and yet God's people were being spared of these things. And the point is clear that God's people are safe from judgment. God's people only receive mercy. How's that possible? How can God, if he really is just as we're talking about, and he really does punish sin, how can God extend judgment to some people, those who have rejected him, and then be able to extend mercy to his own people? How does that work? Does God just sweep our sin under the rug? Does God just ignore the reality of our sin and say, well, your sin's okay, that doesn't have to be dealt with? Of course not. That's not just. In our justice systems, we expect that judges and juries and law enforcement officers faithfully uphold the law. That's what it means to be just. Reminds me of a story of a pastor who was parking his car in a no-parking zone in a major city. And after he parked there, because he ran out of time, he couldn't find a space with a meter, he puts a note on the windshield of his car, and it read this way. He said, I have circled the block ten times. If I don't park here, I'm going to miss my appointment. And he added a Bible verse. Forgive me our trespasses, or forgive us our trespasses. So he runs in, he has his appointment. When he comes back out later to his car, he found a citation from a police officer along with this note. I've circled this block for 10 years. If I don't give you a ticket, I'll lose my job. And then he left a verse, lead us not into temptation. (laughs) See, the police officer's job is to enforce the laws and to do it faithfully. He can't just pick and choose, oh, I'm going to cite these people. I'm not going to cite these people. He needs to be fair. He needs to be equal to all. And infinitely more so, God must deal justly. All sin needs to be punished. So if that's the case, then how can God possibly extend mercy to his people? Please look at verse 1, chapter 12. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. According to what what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month. When the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. 
For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Drop down to verse 23. Sorry, verse 21. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. So notice with me, church, the Israelites are not innocent in this episode. Their sin needed to be dealt with too. Bible commentator Anthony Salvaggio put it this way. He said, something was required to die on the night of the Passover. Death and the shedding of blood were required. The options of the Israelites were their firstborn sons or the blood of the lamb. But the fact that blood was required was not up for debate. End quote. God in his justice judged the sins of his people, but in his mercy, he provided a substitute, the sacrifice of a spotless lamb. Notice in verse 3 that every household had to perform this sacrifice. Here's what they had to do. Each family, so imagine you and your family, you've got to go out, you've got to select a lamb or a goat, spotless, a year old. You've got to take that lamb You have to slaughter it. You have to drain its blood. Then you have to roast it properly. Then you have to take the blood and you have to apply it to the doorpost of your house and to the frame above. You have to place blood in all of those spots of your house. And then after doing all of that, you and your family had to hunker down inside your house that night, like a family who's got a tornado or a hurricane passing through, hunkering down in their basement. That's what you're doing. That whole night, you're in your home where you have put the blood of the lamb on the doorpost. The blood on the doors was a sign that judgment had already fallen on that house. That blood then covered the family inside. Now, we need to understand that the sacrifice of animals covered sin, but it could not remove it. That's why in the Old Testament, the Israelites, they had to constantly, year after year, perform these sacrifices for their sins on the Day of Atonement, where the high priest would have to make a sacrifice for the sins of the nation. So this sacrifice here of this animal was a temporary provision that God had put in place to cover his people until the coming of God's ultimate sacrifice, Jesus Christ. And now in Jesus Christ, people's sins are not just covered temporarily. In Christ, people's sins can be permanently removed. See, this Passover lamb here in Exodus 12 is a very clear pointer that directs our attention to the work of Jesus Christ 
as the ultimate substitute for our sins. It's not a coincidence that John the Baptist in John 1.29, upon seeing Jesus, he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 5.7 calls Jesus our Passover Lamb. And like the Passover Lamb who had to be without blemish, Jesus as the Lamb of God was perfect and without blemish. Justin read 1 Peter chapter 1 for us. Here's just verses 18 and 19. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. Just as the Passover lamb delivered the Israelites from their greatest enemy, which is death, our Passover lamb, the Lord Jesus, delivers you and I from our greatest enemy, which of course is death. Jesus said in John 11, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. It is through the sacrifice of Christ that those of us who put our faith in him receive mercy rather than judgment. These last two are going to come much quicker, but the Passover is an act of faith. We can't miss this. When Moses came to the children of Israel and he told them what they needed to do to be free of this 10th plague, they had a decision in front of them. They could either listen to what Moses said, take God's word by faith, and do exactly as God commanded them, or they could disregard it and say, oh, that's interesting that you're telling me to do this, Moses, but I don't want to. But notice what the Israelites do after Moses told the elders what to do. Here's what we read in verse 28. Then the people of Israel went and did so as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. These Israelites exercised great faith. And I want you to remember what a production this all was. I mean, they had a, a lot of stuff that they had to do to prepare themselves for the Passover that night. A question for you. What would have happened if an Israelite family would have said, yeah, you know, Moses, Aaron, listen, we believe you guys, but that sounds like an awful lot of work. You want to know what would have happened? Death. What would have happened if that family said, Moses and Aaron, we totally believe you. Like, we trust on everything you're saying. We believe in Yahweh. We believe all that. But I don't really do so well with blood. <laughs> I'm not going to do that whole thing. What would have happened to that family? Death. What would have happened to a family who said, Moses and Aaron, we believe you. We totally believe what you're saying to us. But I can't stay home tonight. I already made plans to go see a midnight showing with some friends. Death. The, the point is that they had to do exactly what God had asked them to do. That's what faith looks like. It's taking God at his word. It's going about things the way that God has commanded you to. That's what faith is. They had to do exactly what God asked them to. That was the only way to be spared. They had to go through his appointed sacrifice. Why does this matter? Because today you and I live smack dab in the middle of a pluralistic society. And what that means is that we are a melting pot of ideas, belief systems, value systems, and Christianity is just one among many different options. 
And one of the core values in a pluralistic society is this, that everyone's belief system, everyone's value system is equally valid and should be affirmed. Of course, that's self-defeating because all beliefs and values are equaled and affirmed except the belief that would say that all beliefs and values are not equal and should not be affirmed. And so the greatest sin you could commit in a pluralistic society is to say that one system is right or true or better than another. And so I've talked to many people over the years who will say, I believe in Jesus or I'm a Christian. I just don't believe that Jesus is the only way you can get to God. Or I've talked to many people who say, Pastor, I'm a very spiritual person. And I have a relationship with God. I, I just, I've just kind of taken bits and pieces from different religions and different belief systems. And I've kind of piecemealed all that together to form my relationship with God. Do you know what the problem with that is, church? That just as the Israelites were only saved by going about it in exactly the way that God had instructed them, so too can people only be saved by going about it the way God tells them to. God's word says this. Jesus speaking, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Why? Because Jesus and Jesus alone, as the God-man, is the only one who is uniquely qualified to be your substitute. He's the only one who's uniquely qualified to pay the penalty for your sins and to give you his righteousness in its place. So outside of Christ, we're like the Egyptians outside of a home waiting for judgment. Fourth and finally, the Passover is an act of remembrance. Yes, the Passover was an event, but from the beginning, it was meant to be an event that was remembered. Look at Exodus 12, verse 14. This day shall be kept for you a memorial day. And you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations, as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses. For if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day you shall hold an assembly, a holy assembly. And on the seventh day a holy assembly. No work shall be done on those days. But what everyone needs to eat, that alone may be prepared by you. And you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread. For on this very day I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. So God was saying you are going to celebrate every year on this date going forward the Passover. This will be a holiday, a memorial day for you. Because God didn't want them to forget. Now, we're all sitting here, I'm sure, and we're thinking, how would you forget that? <laughs> if you were in your home and the angel of the Lord passed over and all the firstborn sons throughout all of the land of Egypt were struck dead that night and you all got delivered, how in the world could you forget something like that? Well, human nature is such that we forget things, even really significant and important things. You know, I remember in the wake of 9-11, um, I remember thinking about those towers and that day every single day for a long time. I mean, it was just there in my thought, just how crazy that was, how tragic that was. But here we are some 18 years later, and I'll tell you, I, I just don't think about it every day. I, actually, I probably don't think about it all that often anymore, except for on 9-11. 
So holidays are a really good thing because they function as reminders. We just had Memorial Day last weekend. How often would you stop and pause and reflect on the men and women who have laid down their lives for our country if we didn't have that holiday? Not very often. What about anniversaries, guys? <laughs> How good would you do at remembering, oh yeah, this is the day we got married and it's been this many years. If that wasn't marked on the calendar and you had that little reminder in your phone, go get flowers and a card, which get those at Trader Joe's. Beautiful flowers, cards, wonderful. And then get her something really extravagant beyond that. But we need those reminders. Holidays are great reminders for us as humans. We need them. And something as significant as Passover was something that God could not afford to let his people ever forget. They needed to constantly be reminded of his love for them as he demonstrated it in this great act of deliverance. Well, similarly for us as New Covenant believers, as Christians here today, God has instituted a remembrance ceremony so that you and I will never, ever lose sight of the amazing sacrifice of our Passover lamb, Jesus Christ. That's why on a regular basis, the Christian church comes together to receive communion, to receive the Lord's Supper. And it's no coincidence that Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper on the Passover. Jesus was clearly connecting himself to that event, showing that he was the ultimate Passover lamb. And the reason why Jesus instituted this practice, the reason why Jesus said, do this regularly, do this as often as you come together, the reason for that is because Jesus never, ever, ever wants us to forget his great sacrifice for our salvation. So today we're going to celebrate communion together. Today we're going to take time to remember the amazing sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the spotless lamb who sacrificed his own life so that our sins could be removed forever, so that they could be taken as far as the east is from the west. And we're going to give thanks together for the fact that Jesus Christ took our place. Just as something had to die on that night of Passover 3,500 years ago, and the Israelites had a choice, it was either their firstborn or the lamb, something had to die for our sins, either you or Jesus. And Jesus, because of his amazing love for you, gladly, willingly, freely said, let it be me. And he went to the cross and he died on that tree. And so this morning, we need to reflect on that unimaginable love, that costly sacrifice, and this amazing once and for all act that demonstrates God's love for us. So we're going to do that by Reflecting now as we have a closing worship song, we're going to sing, we're going to reflect on what Christ has done, and then we're going to serve the communion elements after that, and we are going to together remember and worship and praise Jesus, our Passover lamb, together. So let's worship now. I'm going to pray. Lord, thank you so much for your great love. Thank you for your sacrifice. Father, we thank you that you have made a provision for us, we who are sinners here this morning and who honestly are deserving of your judgment, we thank you that you have made provision for us to have our sins dealt with so that we don't have to receive that death sentence ourselves. And God, we know how costly this is. It was nothing less than the price of your own son. 
So Jesus, we worship you. We honor you. We give you glory and praise this morning for your willingness to go to the cross and die for our sins. And we thank you that three days later you took up your life again and you are alive forevermore. And we're thankful that you're here now with us. And we pray that our hearts would, once again this morning as we sing and as we receive communion, that our hearts would be reminded again of your great love and that they would be stirred up with love in response. And we ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen.